Uh, my name is Jim Wallace. I work in Los Angeles County as a homicide detective. I've been there for, um, well, a long, long time. <laughs> and I won't bore you with all the details. You can go to the first service and watch all of that to get those boring details. But I think I've learned a few things that might be helpful for the church. I wasn't raised in the church. I didn't know anybody, anybody in the church. I didn't know any Christians. I, I might have known a few kids growing up. My dad's not a Christian. Dad's a pretty committed atheist. And my mom was kind of a cultural Catholic, but not really engaged, not really uh, interested. And so I kind of grew up with a disdain for people of faith. I, this was in the Star Trek generation, right? The first cast of Star Trek. For all you college students, there is a first cast with William Shatner. That's the real James Kirk. <laughs> right? Am I right? Raise your hand if that's the real James Kirk. Okay. So, you know, back in these days, in the 60s and 70s, I think I actually thought that science would eventually have an answer for everything. So there's no way I was going to bite off in mythologies. And it wasn't until I got to a place uh, where I entered a church at the age of 35, and I sat down and listened to a pastor who pitched Jesus as a, as a wise sage, somebody who had some interesting information. I was willing to look at him that way, Right? I'm going to give you three generations of law enforcement experience because about halfway through my career, I got saved. So my son in the middle here, he was raised in the church. I'm on the outside, but believe it or not, that actually, I'm not the guy who's the brother of the other guy. That's my dad. Everyone always thinks we're brothers. My dad thinks that's so funny. <laughs> he takes me places in Texas where I walk in and he'll introduce me and they'll say, oh, you brought your brother. He thinks that's so funny. He brings me back to the same place every year. <laughs> so the next year he said, oh, I brought my brother. And he'll say, uh, how many years do you think separate us? And the lady will look at me and look at him and they'll say, mm, six. Oh, that's so funny to him. <laughs> yeah, we were in a little rib joint in Jefferson, Texas. We're sitting down eating ribs. I've got my UCLA shirt. Jimmy and I went to UCLA and my son David's at SC. Well, my dad's a big SC fan. He had his SC shirt on, right? A guy walks up and he says, hey, I bet you guys used to fight a lot as kids. You're twins, right? That's what he said. He said, you're twins, right? Oh, my gosh. My dad thinks those are the greatest stories. I'm saying those for you, Dad, so you can hear those stories. Now, we're going to talk about some stuff that I get a chance to go around the country now, and I, I get to volunteer for Stand to Reason. I have a pension. I'm kind of semi-retired right now. Almost done. In about six months, I'll be completely done. In the meantime, I get to partner with Stand to Reason. I also blog on a daily basis at a website called coldcasechristianity.com. So a lot of what we're going to talk about today, I write about every day. And I post a blog every morning before 6 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. So you'll be able to get that blog. <laughs> then we go for a run. And then I take a nappy nap. Oh, no, never mind. I'm getting too many personal <laughs> details. Okay, so if you wanted to reach me on Twitter, this is the way you can reach me on Twitter. That's for just this section over here who actually uses Twitter. Some of you guys use Twitter, right? Okay, yeah, there's some young people over here, so that's cool. All right, let's get after it. Uh, we're here because I think the culture is, for the most part, aligned against us, and it is starting to align against us a lot more. This is me, not really me, this is Richard Dawkins, a very famous atheist, wrote a book called The God Delusion, and he's got one of the more um, probably popular internet atheist websites in the world, who wrote this line, which really expresses what I believe for a long time. Many of us saw religion as harmless nonsense. Beliefs might lack all supporting evidence, but hey, we thought if people needed a crutch for consolation, where's the harm? September 11th changed all that. What does he mean by September 11th changed all that? Well, because you crazies 
who believe things for which there are no supporting evidence are far more likely to fly planes into buildings than rational people who come to conclusions on the basis of evidence. And if I asked you guys in this room, why are you a Christian? What kind of answers do you think I'm going to get? Just out of curiosity. Because? Because Because why? I know too much information. Like what kind of information? Um, That God is holy and a creator and there's just too many facts. That God is holy and a creator and there are too many facts to support. Give me some facts. Um, This is kind of coming off the rails, isn't it, Troy? Sorry. (laughs) Go ahead. He has it written down in text on how the world is created. Okay, great. They found Abraham's house. Let me tell you something. Everything you've given me so far, and when I hear that plus things like I was raised in the church, I have a relationship with Jesus, I have a relationship with God, I've had experiences that confirm my faith. These are all things my six brothers and sisters who are Mormon tell me. Those answers are identical to what my Mormon family would say. And you don't believe Mormonism is true. When our Christian answers sound like the Mormon answers, we probably aren't digging deep enough. I'm just going to suggest that to you. I'm going to throw it out to you. And for those of you who are in your college years, you know that's not going to fly. Because I will push you to give me a good reason. And I was a pretty committed, angry, obstinate. I know every view on the other side really well. I've read all these books. I used to speak those words. And Christians who don't come to truth claims on the basis of evidence are dangerous. You sure don't want them running your country. That's how you get into wars. That's how you make stupid policy decisions against same-sex marriage or against all the things that that you Christians are all homophobic, pro-life, knuckleheads against women's rights. I mean, you're just a mess. You're a mess because you make decisions without grounding them in evidence. And I can demonstrate that because if I ask you why you're a Christian, you can't give me one good evidential reason. Really? We don't want to be there, do we? That doesn't feel good. When in fact, we've got deep, rich evidences to support the claims of Christianity. I want to share a couple with you today, okay? So you won't be in this place where someone like Richard Dawkins can say, well, you might have some arguments for God's existence and things. Well, you might have some of those things, but you don't really have any real, physical, direct, forensic evidence. And I don't even think that Richard knows the categories of evidence. We're going to talk about them today. It'll help you come to some... By the way, when the culture attacks your worldview, they are attacking the person of Christ. And we have to make a decision whether we're going to defend. This is the one thing we're called to do in 1 Peter 3, right? We'll talk about that at the very end. What precisely qualifies as evidence? Well, there are some things you can learn from cold cases that I think you can apply to the Christian worldview. Cold cases are events in the distant past for which we typically don't have any good evidence, and that's why they're cold. We don't have eyewitnesses who are still alive who can tell us what happened. That would be great, right? That's called direct evidence. We don't have direct evidence most of the time. That's why it's cold. Also, I don't have any cases that have been helped by uh, forensic evidence, DNA, that kind of stuff. I mean, those are out there. There are cases that are solved quickly on the basis of DNA. I just don't happen to have any. I looked. I opened up 30 cases looking for a quick hits, right? Are there some in here I can just solve in one week? Uh, no. We have to make ours the old-fashioned way, which is a long process of building circumstantial cases over time that are so compelling that it's hard to deny the truth. 
That's the kind of case that you, I take to trial all the time. I've never had a case based on direct evidence. All my cases are circumstantial, yet all these guys are still in jail. This is actually how we can also look at the Christian worldview. An event in the distant past, no living eyewitnesses, no good forensic evidence, but we can make a very compelling cumulative circumstantial case that would pass the same standard, the same rigor that we would use in a criminal trial. So I want to teach you a couple of principles we use in criminal trials that will help you to examine this case. The first one is the distinction between what's possible and what's reasonable. It's important because anything is possible, and sometimes you'll have theories thrown out about a case, and they certainly fall within the realm of possibilities, but that's not what really matters in trials. We don't even count what's possible in trials, because anything's possible. I said to the first service, if you watched it online or you're still here from the first service, well, you just be quiet. You already know how this is going to go. You already know that you're not really sitting in a church service. You already know that we disguised the front of the ship so it looks like the old church, so when you walked in the doors, you would think you're in Green Bay Community Church, when in fact, you walked into our mothership. And the minute you walked in, we induced an alien coma, and right now, you're all on tables, like in the uh, Matrix, you're all on our tables being examined by the aliens. <laughs> now, you think you're here listening to this message, but you're really not. And tomorrow when you wake up, you'll discover that this has all been a dream. Now, while you're in the alien dream, wouldn't you at least have to admit that is possible? But it's not reasonable. And that's the distinction we make in trials. You're not even allowed to deliberate on what's possible. That's called speculating. You're only allowed to infer from evidence that's been presented to you. That's called a reasonable inference. Make sense? So I had a case, for example, from 1988. A guy murders his wife for about $40,000 they were fighting about in his retirement money. He had an $800,000 retirement. She wanted 40 grand. He wasn't going to give it to her. She talked to her attorney. They wrote it in to the sale of the house, her attorney, so that he would, she would get her 40000 first. And he didn't know anything about it. And a judge signed this, and they sold the house, and she got her forty grand on a Wednesday. On Thursday, he bought the gun. On Friday, he killed her. Shot her in the head while she was packing the house they were selling. The defense attorney at trial says, well, wait a minute. How do we know this isn't a burglary that went bad? For all we know, you know, a burglar walks in. He discovers a victim still in the house, you know, and he shoots her. Well, time out. Do we have any evidence of forced entry? No. Do we have any evidence that anything's taken from the house? No. Do we have any evidence that there's um, uh, uh, any, anyone in the house other than the husband and wife? No. Do we have any evidence of a string of burglaries in this neighborhood during that time frame? No. Then you can't even consider it. You can't even consider this in your deliberations because to do so would be speculating. You have no evidence for that. You have to limit your speculation, limit your investigation to reasonable inferences from evidence presented in trial. So when someone throws out something to you like they believe that God exists, the first thing I'm going to say is why? Why do you believe that? Make your case. If they can't, it's speculation. Possibilities. I think Jesus is a recreation of prior mythologies like Mithras, Osiris, Horus. Really make your case. If you can't make it, that's just a possibility. It's not reasonable, though, unless it can be grounded in evidence. See the difference? Okay. Having that difference in mind, let's move forward and talk about this standard of proof called reasonable doubt. It's not beyond a possible doubt. It's beyond a reasonable doubt. That's why evidence is so important. I'll give you an idea of how this works, okay? But in order to do this, we've got to decide how do we make a decision about what's reasonable? We do it with the process, but you're going to have to be prepared for something gruesome in order to do this process with me. Are you ready for something gruesome? 
No kids in there, right? All the little, the, what, the, the kids were already released. You already high-fived all those kids. They're gone. How old are you, son? Ten. You're ready for this. No problem. Here we go. In the crime scene. I get called out to a lot of death scenes. Okay, what's, what's your name, by the way? Matt. Okay, I'm going to test Matt to see if this is offensive to you. If it's offensive to you, then I'm assuming it's offensive to every other student in the room. Sorry. Dead guy on the ground. They call us out. It's a death scene, but it's not necessarily my problem because I only work homicides. There are four ways to die. Only one is a homicide. If it's the other three ways, I get to go home. <laughs> so I'm really eager to make it one of the other three ways, especially if it's like two in the morning, right? So you get there, and you see a dead guy laying face down. So you think to yourself, well, there are some ways to explain this, explanatory possibilities. How what could this be? There are four ways to die. Do you know what they are? Not if you've read the book. What are the four ways to die? Shout them out. Natural death. Very good. Natural death. You could have a heart attack. Even. That could be. Suicide. What's before suicide? Accidental. They don't put a suicide on the wall. What's the fourth way? Homicide. So here we have the four ways people can die. Now let's take a look at our room for a second. All we have in terms of evidence is a dead guy laying face down. Which of these four can we reasonably cross off the the uh, clipboard. Suicide. Well, what if you took sleeping pills? Can't cross off suicide. Accidental. Maybe he fell on something. When I roll him over, I'll find it. Natural. Maybe he had a heart attack. Well, maybe somebody choked him. Do you see I can't cross any of them off, can I? There's not enough here. So the most reasonable inference, given the evidence in the room, I can't cross off anything. Let's change the scenario. Now, instead of just having a guy who's dead laying on the ground, I have a dead guy laying on the ground. Look how quiet everybody is. <laughs> In a pool of blood. Centered around his torso. Centered right around this torso area, right? It's right around this torso. So now let's take a look at our explanatory possibilities. Natural death, accidental death, suicide, homicide. Well, the evidence in the room is slightly different. I have a dead guy laying face down, but now he's in a pool of his own blood. So now what can I reasonably cross off my list? Yeah, I think I can cross now. But what if he had a brain aneurysm and he drops down, he's blood out through his mouth? Blood wouldn't be centered on his torso. Right? What is the natural opening in your torso area that you could bleed out of? Now, by the way, I asked this question of a class of eighth graders one time, and I got an answer that I typically won't get in a, an adult setting. But she was serious. I'm like, well, okay, well, we'll just move right along on that one. But I think, yes, there's not a natural opening from which you can bleed out in your stomach, so I think it's reasonable to cross off natural death. Make sense? Okay. But can I cross off accidental? No. How about suicide? Or homicide. But what if the scenario was slightly different? What if instead of having a dead guy laying face down in a pool of his own blood, it was a dead guy laying face down in blood with a knife sticking out of his back? <laughs> now we're getting good, aren't we? This is a homicide detective. What did you expect when you came here? Hey, Matt, are we okay? Matt, are we okay? Okay, we're good. So here we got a guy with a knife in his back. Now let's go back to our evidence list. We've changed slightly. We have a guy laying in a pool of his own blood. He's got a knife in his back. Now can we eliminate any other explanatory possibilities? Well, I think can we eliminate accidental? I can't imagine a scenario that's reasonable in which you can impale yourself that deeply accidentally. But how about a suicide? It's pretty low. I think you could probably eliminate that too. But really, you could reach that. And what if you just didn't want to see what you're doing? Oh, it's behind my back. I'll surprise myself. 
you know, who knows? But the point is, I think we got to leave it on the wall. So we'll leave it there. Let's change the scenario, though. Yeah. Don't look. I feel so bad. No, I don't feel bad at all. Here we go. Instead of having a knife in the back, I've got multiple stab wounds. Oh, this is bad. So now this is slightly different. Knife in the back, multiple stab wounds. I think now suicide is less reasonable, right? Unless he's got a super high tolerance for pain and he's got really great flexibility. He's like a samurai. He's working at Benihana's. Stick in there. Now I think it's reasonable. Now, if I went one step further, what if I had bloody footprints walking away from the scene? It's kind of hard to kill yourself and then put, walk yourself out the door. Now I think it's really reasonable, but the most reasonable inference is homicide, given the evidence in the room, including the bloody footsteps, right? So just so you guys know, this is not real, of course. This is my son, Jimmy. Photoshopped him before he went into the academy. He was working at Trader Joe's. By the way, would anybody even want to kill somebody from Trader Joe's anyway? How would we eat? All my meals come from Trader Joe's. Forget it. I'm never going to do that. So he's, he's fine. I've just shown you what is called abductive reasoning. Abductive reasoning. It's simply you look at the evidences in the room, make a list. Make a list of all the ways you could explain the list. Go back and forth between evidences and explanations until you start crossing out those that are unreasonable. That's called abductive reasoning or inferring to the most reasonable explanation. Got it? That's what detectives do. That's what we ask jurors to do. Now we're going to turn a corner and look at the case for the Gospels. This morning... We talked about the first two uh, categories. I never trust an eyewitness. Never. That's just one of the things that cops don't do. We don't trust anybody. <laughs> and it serves our purposes quite well. If you walk up on that car, like the guy who just ran through that red light is just late for work, you walk up on it one way. If you walk up on that car because the guy you think the guy who just ran that red light is coming from a robbery where he just shot two people, you will walk up on that car differently. And you'll go home tonight. So sometimes when you get pulled over by a police officer and you're thinking, why is he treating me so poorly? That's why. We want to go home every night. We walk up assuming the worst until you prove otherwise. And I do the same thing with witnesses. Ever watch House? Greg House, the, uh, the, the, the character. What's the first thing he says? Everyone lies. Get to the lie. Well, I assume this about witnesses until I test them in four categories. The same four categories we test witnesses in every jury trial. These are them. We offer instructions to jurors on how to evaluate eyewitness accounts on the stand. They break down into these four categories, and to make it easy, I'll give it to you in single words. Were the witnesses really there? Were they present? Were the witnesses, can they be verified in some way, corroborated in some way? Are they honest? Are they changing their story over time? Are they liars? And finally, are they biased, so biased we can't trust what they would say to begin with? That's the way we evaluate witnesses in court. We can evaluate the authors of the Gospels the exact same way. And this morning we talked about the first two categories. Were they really there early enough to have been eyewitnesses? Because if the Gospels are written late in history, 2nd, 3rd, 4th century, you shouldn't trust them because they weren't written by eyewitnesses because they're written too late in history. And we talked about really good reasons to believe that the Gospels are written very early, within 15 years of the resurrection. And I talked about that this morning. So I'm going to send you materials also. We'll talk about that later. Or you can watch the video from this morning. We also talked about how we could corroborate the claims of Scripture. And we just took two small categories, archaeology and the writings of non-Christians in the first century to see what they say about Jesus. But there are lots of other ways internally you could corroborate that I've written about in a book. That is to make a case for verification. 
Now, that's all the first service. Today, we're going to talk in this service about the last two categories, okay? So I apologize if you missed the first two. But we'll start really with the one that I had the biggest problem with. I did not deny that Jesus lived. I was willing to go to church and look at Jesus' words as a wise sage because I thought he was probably a smart guy. Anyone who's got vetted wisdom, I don't care if it's Jesus or Buddha or Socrates or Baha'u'llah or Muhammad, I am willing to actually listen to what those guys had to say, but I don't accept it as scripture, as God's word. It's just smart, ancient, proverbial wisdom. Okay. So I would not have denied that. I believe that Jesus changed over time, that the wise smart teacher that was really there in the first century over time morphed into the guy who could walk on water, feed 5,000, and rise from the dead. That is additional late legend. And I thought, either it was written late, or if it was written early, the first copies didn't say what we have today. Whatever your gospel of Mark says today, that wasn't part of the original. Whatever your gospel of John says today, that wasn't part of the original. It changed over time. And that's the thing we're going to attest right now in terms of accuracy. Here are uh, pictures of the guy we just did our last. We've done, uh, I think, three cases on Dateline, and we have one more coming up in May. Uh, they're pretty high-profile cases. This last one uh, was last March, was on the air. It still plays constantly. I get calls all the time. Oh, we saw this thing on TV. Yeah. This guy in 1981 killed his wife, and he got rid of her body and told her family that she had run off, and we had no body, and we took it as a missing persons report in 1981. And for six years, that's how it stayed. Nobody worked it. Her family was not even concerned about her disappearance. She had a five and an eight-year-old that she abandoned. But the family, we figured, hey, the family doesn't think this is a big deal. Maybe they know her better than we do. So no one got excited about this case until a sergeant in 1987, I think it was, yeah, decided to look at the case and see if it was still open, you know, clear some old cases. He saw this one. He called the family, figuring they would say, oh, yeah, she came back you know, a couple months later. No, she never came back. And our sergeant goes, uh-oh, this is not a missing. This is probably a homicide. So we had no crime scene, no evidence, no body, no nothing. Now, we adjudicated this case in front of a jury about a year ago, a year and a half ago. And they found him guilty in four hours with all kinds of unanswered questions. How did he get rid of her body? Exactly how did he kill her? Where did he put her body? How did he get her out that night and nobody found it? How did he move her car and make it look like she was missing? No idea how to answer any of those questions. By the way, when we sentenced him, he confessed to all of it. He had been convicted. At sentencing, he confessed to all of it and gave us the body location. But we caught him because his story changed over time. When asked in 1981 what happened, he offered one story. And guess what? Nobody asked him again until 1987. And by that time, he couldn't remember what he told us in 1981. He didn't have a picture in his mind's eye to go revisit. He had told a lie. He He couldn't reconstruct it. And every time, then we didn't talk again until 1996, another lie. 2010, another lie. When people change their story over time, you shouldn't trust them. Well, then why do you trust the Gospels? Well, first of all, I'm, I'm skeptical to even begin with, right? You should be too. You ever compared the Gospels to one another? They don't match. You know that, right? And in some pretty significant ways, they are different. How many women run to the tomb to see Jesus rise from the dead? How many? One? Two? Depends on the gospel. How many angels are at the tomb when they get there? How many? Two? One? It depends on the gospel. 
Four, there's, there's a sign hanging over Jesus' cross, right? Four Gospels describe the, what, six letters, six words that are in this sign? Do any of them agree? None of them agree. It's not a long sentence, guys. How can you not get that right? Do you know how many contradictions there are in Scripture? Differences there are in the accounts? It's sick. And if you discover that, by the way, for the first time sitting in some, you know, the Bible as literature class or, you know, some class that's going to attack your faith, trust me, if you discover that then and you don't know what that even matters, you will be shaken. You will start to question whether any of this is true. Now, I can tell you that as an investigator, that's never bothered me coming to it as a 35-year-old guy who'd been working homicides for a number of years. This did not bother me. Because every case I've ever worked in which more than one witness saw the same event, no one agrees. No one ever agrees. I'll give you an example of this. I had a case where I got called out on a rainy night. Um, I was still working fresh homicides. And I got called out with a team. And I almost always will say, okay, I'm about an hour from there. I've got to put a suit on and all that nonsense. So I said, okay. Usually I'll say, do you have witnesses? Yes. Separate the witnesses. Then I'll get in the car and I'll come in. I didn't say that on this particular night, and it was raining, so the officers who were there did the witnesses a favor in their mind by putting them all in the back of a single patrol car where they stayed together in the back of that patrol car unmonitored for an hour before I got there. Now, is that a good thing or a bad thing? That's a bad thing because in the end, they had a chance to, like, I think he had a big gun in his, in his uh, belt, like right, right here. No, that was his buckle. He had like a cowboy buckle. Oh, maybe you're right. No, 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 don't do that. <laughs> If you thought it was a bug, I don't want people to have all one perfect story. I want there to be a messy, apparently contradictory, fuzzy mess. I'll figure that out. That's my job. I'll sort it out because in reality, everyone has a piece of the truth. And no one's really wrong. It's just a matter of perspective, either physical perspective or emotional perspective or maybe a history. You know guns. I don't know guns. You know clothing. I don't know clothing. You're going to catch something I didn't catch. You have a different worldview, a different perspective than I have. That's my job to sort out the mess. But the mess does not mean it didn't happen. Can you imagine if every case I went in where I had competing ideas about, uh, I, was, I, was, I said, you know what, sorry, can't work this case. They aren't exactly the same. That's not going to be, no one's going to accept that. It's my job to push through that. That's your job too as Christians. Why might these be subtly different? We have a jury instruction in which we tell witnesses, do not reject witness testimony on the basis of apparent contradictions. Ask questions about why they might be different first. Make sense? So if you start to see changes or small variations, don't panic. Because this is the case of every single investor. If I had someone run up here right now, smack me in the head and run off through that door, and I interviewed all of you, I'd have how many different views of this? No, you guys would not agree. I've done it with a youth group of 40. I can't get 40 students to agree on the sex of the perpetrator. <laughs> really? Now, like, I we, could, we could deny it ever happened, but that would be stupid. You don't deny it happens because there might be differences and variations of, of eyewitness testimonies. So never worry about this. It's actually a good thing. Do you think skeptics would be any more comfortable with the Gospels if we had four Gospels that were word for word exactly the same? Uh, no. They'd say there's collusion involved. Can't trust it. So I think the variations that I see within the accounts are well within the range I would expect from reliable eyewitness accounts. Well within that range. But how do we know that it didn't change over time. I've got a crime scene here, the life of Jesus, in a courtroom later on called the Council of Laodicea. The Council of Laodicea is the first place 
that Christians came together to set what was going to be canonical scripture. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, they're in. Thomas is out. They made decisions about what is really an eyewitness account. But how do we know that whatever was recorded at this end is the same thing that ends up over here at that end? How do we know? It's kind of like a crime scene, and we have this all the time, that goes to court years later. I'll put a piece of evidence in the crime scene. Ready? Here's a casing. See it? The casing's in the crime scene. The question is, how do I know that the casing I bring into trial years later, see it in the courtroom there? How do I know that that casing is the same casing? How do I even know that casing was really in the crime scene to begin with? For all I know, the thing I bring into court today was never part of the original crime. Some lying detective drops it into property 10 years later, and nobody knew, and no one worked the case for all those years, so by the time the next person comes along, they don't know any better. He takes it to the crime lab, and they think it's real evidence. They take it to the next detective. He brings it into court, and none of it should even be in the case to begin with because it wasn't part of the crime scene. Think about that. That's often an accusation that's made in real trials. This was in a late insertion. Well, think about it in terms of the scripture. Okay, we have this thing at the crime scene, the Gospel of John, and we have a Gospel of John that eventually gets brought into the council. How do we know that that Gospel of John was really the same Gospel of John we had originally? How do we know that many times over the course of history, some lying or even some not lying, just well-intended but made a mistake in a copy, Changes occur in the gospel repeatedly over history again and again and again. Not just one time, maybe a thousand times before it gets to the council. And by the time it gets to the council, the people who are there, they don't know any better. They bring it in like it's really the word of God. They think it's John's gospel, but really it's nothing like the original gospel. Do you see the similarities here? So how do we know? How can we have confidence that the gospel of John you have today is the same gospel of John they had back then? Well, one way to do it is to examine what's called the chain of custody. In real criminal trials, we go back to our crime scene and we ask a question. Was there somebody at the crime scene who took a picture, shot a Polaroid, of the casing or wrote a really good supplemental report, the first officer at the scene? By the way, do you guys even know what a Polaroid is? Okay. If you know what a Polaroid is, raise your hand. Okay, good. Put your hands down. If you've touched, you really, you know what a Polaroid is because you've actually touched a Polaroid picture, raise your hand. It's not too bad. There are still some of you who are like, what the heck is that? This is a Polaroid camera. They still make them. This is, used to be something similar to all we used to have when we would work these kinds of cases. This is how they work. They're pretty easy, okay? Take the Polaroid out, open it up. You point it at your, your victim or your whatever it is. And you look through the thing here and you take a picture. Hang on. Wait, 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 wait. Oh, here it comes. Bing, you have a picture. Is that cool, huh? Now you all think you can date yourselves with this. I'll, I'll, let me just date yourself with, with this uh, technology. How many of you remember this Polaroid? Click, <laughs> Okay, okay, okay. How many of you remember this Polaroid? Click, Older people, older people. How many of you remember this one? Raise your hand if you remember this one. Here we go, you ready? Click. Oh, yeah, we used to actually in the 60s have to put the solution on the film before it would develop. Do you believe that? This is for you. Thank you very much. You're welcome. 
So this is what we asked. Was there somebody there who actually was at the scene who can remember, who took a picture of it? So we documented it. Did he give it to somebody else? Maybe we took another investigative poll or wrote another supplemental report. And then they bring it into the crime lab, take the very first 35 millimeter film, they do all the tests on it, they make a much more detailed report. They bring it out to another guy who takes a report and brings it into court. That is called the chain of custody. Because we can go through and have multiple pictures and reports of the same piece of evidence over the years so we can see what did it look like in 1981, what did it look like in 85, 96, 2010. We can actually see that it's not changing over time. That little nick or mark on the casing that's so important in trial today was there in the beginning. Does that make sense? The question we really have is, is there a chain of custody for the New Testament? And there is a chain of custody for the New Testament. I'll show it to you. Here's our crime scene. Here's our courtroom. First officer at the scene, a guy named John. He takes a picture of Jesus. It's called the Gospel of John. It could be Mark. It could be a number of people. But I'm picking John right now for fun. So here's John. He takes a picture of Jesus. But what's in the picture? I don't trust the picture. I want to see what does his picture have in it. I go to the next officers in the, in the chain of custody. Because he had students. John had students. He had three students, Ignatius, Polycarp, and Papias. Personal students of John. And he taught them everything that was in his gospels, his gospel. So if we want to see what John said back then, we can go to his students and ask them, hey, what is John saying? It turns out we're in good luck because these three guys became leaders in the church. And they wrote to the local churches. So Ignatius, we still have seven letters that survive. They're not part of scripture but we have seven ancient letters in which we can see what was John teaching Ignatius. And then what is he teaching his churches? Papias, unfortunately, we've lost several of the uh, writings of Papias. But we have one letter still survived to the church at Philippi from Polycarp. So we can look and say, what is it that they learned from John? And we can compare what Polycarp says to what Ignatius says to see if it jives. Turns out that these three men also had a student named Irenaeus. If we want to know what it is these three guys believe, we could ask Irenaeus. What do these guys believe? He wrote a lot. And by the way, I don't know if you noticed or not, but when these guys are writing Ignatius, he's quoting from the Gospels. He's quoting from Paul's letters. You think those letters are out there early? I think so, because they're already quoting from them in the very first generation in the chain of custody. And Irenaeus, he was challenged. He was a great apologist for the church. He wrote a ton of stuff in which he's quoting from all those New Testament books. And he's got a list. He tells you to hear the 24 books from the New Testament that I am using today with my students. Don't let anyone tell you that the canon of Scripture was formed at the first council of Nicaea or Laodicea or by the Roman Catholic Church. It's being used pre-Roman Catholic Church by the first believers. It's not an invention of man. It's just the emergence of eyewitness documents that these guys happen to trust. Make sense? And Irenaeus has got a student named Hippolytus. Hippolytus does the same thing. He writes about all these things, and he lists his own set of 24. No kidding, he kind of mirrors what Irenaeus taught him. But then Hippolytus gets into some trouble. He's sentenced to the mines. He dies in custody. I cannot find a student for Hippolytus. So it stops right there, for at least with this chain of custody. But luckily, there are chains of custody for Paul. Through Linus and Clement, you hear those names in Paul's letters, Linus and Clement became the two, first two bishops in Rome after Paul and, and uh, Peter. And you have Clement writing first Clement. We still have that letter, so we can see what Clement says. Through all the Roman uh, bishops, 
through to Justin Martyr and Tatian, but it stops right there. But how about Peter? We can go through Peter, through Mark, through the North African bishops that Mark hand-selected five, through the school at Alexandria with Pontanaeus, all the way through Eusebius into the council. We can look at the pictures of Jesus over and over and over again to see, is he changing over time? The critics would say, yeah, he's changing over time. You can't trust this. He was not born of a virgin originally. He didn't rise from the dead originally. That's why they're missing in Mark. You don't see a birth narrative in Mark, do you? I don't think so. Look at the last section of your Gospel of Mark. The resurrection is not an original part of that document. So see, he's changed over time. Oh, really? Do this work, and here's what you're going to discover. If you lost all of Scripture, if you didn't have any of the Gospels, but you did have the writings of the first people in the chain of custody, you're still stuck with Jesus. You're stuck with the Jesus who was born of a virgin, who worked miracles, who preached the Sermon on the Mount, who was crucified, beaten, crucified, and buried, and rose from the dead. That version of Jesus, the one that really matters, it's in there. It's in there consistently, early and often. He doesn't change over time. He's not a legend that evolves. He doesn't start off as the sweet Jesus, end up as miracle Jesus. He's miracle Jesus from the very beginning. Got to deal with it. I don't know if you know there's some variations in Scripture. Bart Ehrman, a skeptic who writes a lot of, on his biblical scholar, but he's a skeptic, he says there are more variations between the ancient documents than there are words in the New Testament. If you hear that in, in university setting, that's a true statement. It's meaningless, but it's true. If you compare the ancient copies, we, and by the way, we don't have a complete New Testament until 325. 325. That's why it's important to do the chain of custody to see does the message change. It doesn't change. I have complete confidence the first complete manuscript we have is exactly what we started off with in the very first year. But if you don't know the chain of custody, you might be confused. Now here, there are some variations. I don't know if you've ever noticed. You're using NIV here, right? This is a great Bible, by the way. I was impressed. It's even got your church name on it. So I guess, I think Troy wrote part of this because his name's <laughs> Just okay. But the point is, you've got changes. This is the ESV. ESV or NASB will show you in the margins where there are changes. Here, for example, that word our in some other manuscripts, ancient manuscripts, is actually your. Why do they choose our for the manuscript then? Why do they put that in our Bible? In other places, like this one, it says all. In some places, it says every. But there's a lot more than just this. There are thousands of word variations between scribes who made copies, who had small variations between the copies. How can you trust this? If there are that many variations, I'll show you how. If you camp on variations, you'll get discouraged. But if you camp on copies, you'll get encouraged. Here's what I mean. I have two sons. One's in law enforcement. He's 25. He's got my name, all the same name. I said in the last service, we're like the George Foreman of law enforcement. Okay, we just had the same name over and over and over again. <laughs> but my other son, David, is in med school. Med school is super expensive in California. Do you know what it costs to the first year at USC? First year, med school, his loan, not mine. I can't help him, okay? I'm a cop. It's not him. He took loans. 80 grand is for year one. So he's always broke. So let's say he texted me, texted me on my iPhone, and he says, hey, I need some money. Okay, fine. I got some money for you. I'll give you $5,000. I'll give it to you next uh, Tuesday at Starbucks on Main Street, 4 o'clock. Just meet me there. We'll give you $5,000. So I text him back. Uh-oh, got a problem. See the problem? Typos. Don't you hate the autocomplete from iPhone? Don't you feel like just chucking that phone across the room? That's, especially if you've got fat fingers. So I got some typos. He doesn't understand what I'm saying. 
Don't know what the amount is. It's maybe at Starving on Main Street. Okay, I'll, read, I'll do it again. Here we go. Now I got the 5,000 right. They meet me at Mary. Everything's good. Oh, next weakness. Weakness is not good. That's the bad. Okay, so I'll just one more time. Got the 5,000, you nerds. So that's not good. So I'll just text them one more time. Got the 5,000, you need to meet me. Okay, that's good. Oh, main streak. Ah, one more time. Oh, meek. Meek me. Oh, geez. Okay, let me ask you guys a question. Where is my son David going to meet me next week? Where? At Starbucks. Which one? The one on main. What time? Well, for how much money? How do you know that? You don't, how can you know that? You don't have one inerrant copy. Every one of these copies has got an error in it. How do you think you know? Well, you know because you compared copies. And the variations are different in each copy, so you can actually go back to the original. Now, let's say I was really anal retentive about this, and I was not going to give up with five. I'm going to blast this kid. All right? Now, if I did this, do you think you would eventually say, stop, I get it, enough already. I'm, okay, I'll be there at five o'clock. You know, I got it, four o'clock. He would. He would, right? This is the beautiful dilemma we have as Christians. We have this many manuscripts. We have thousands of manuscripts to compare to one another, and that's why we can make good decisions about what the original says. We can return to originals because we have so many copies. Variations don't matter. Manuscript numbers matter. Got it? So have confidence. Don't be fooled. You're going to hear that lie coming. Don't be fooled. I was on a radio show in, uh, in England called Unbelievable. And in this show, they have a skeptic call in, and he was challenging the Gospel of Luke based on the writing of Josephus. Now, think about this. Why would I trust the Gospel of Luke more than Josephus? Josephus is a Jewish historian in the first century. They say slightly different things about a couple of historical details. Well, part of the reason I trust Luke is because I have so many copies, and they date very early. We'll talk, get the first message, you'll hear that. And there were lots of disciples like Ignatius and Polycarp and Papias who talked about what Luke and John wrote. I can cross-check it. Why would I trust Josephus? There's only 120 copies of his work, and the first one doesn't even show up until the 11th century. There's only 35 before the 13th century. And there are no disciples of Josephus talking about what he wrote. Just on its face, I would far quicker trust Luke than I would Josephus. Do you see how this kind of works when you're analyzing texts? Copies matter. How early they are written. By the way, write these down. These are the most important copies we use. <laughs> so I want you to take a picture with your phone and so you have that for later. No, I'll send you that stuff. All right, last thing we're going to end with is this, and we're really running kind of late. We can do it, though. We can do it. Troy's going, why did I ever ask this guy to come? He's always running late. So bias. Why should we trust anybody with the scripture? When you go to a, a domestic violence case and you get there and, and, and he's there and she's there and she says, he's, he's got, she's got lumps and bruises, he's got lumps and bruises. He hit me first. She hit me first. Well, he started. No, she started. He should go to jail. She should go to jail. Who goes to jail, do you think? They both go to jail. Darn right. Let the detective figure it out tomorrow. I want to get home. So just take him to jail. <laughs> You do the same thing, don't lie. All of you do the same thing. Because you don't know who to trust. There's a bias here. I don't know who's telling me the truth. Well, isn't that kind of the same thing when it comes to Scripture? Bias all comes down to motive, folks. Why is she telling me this or he telling me this if it's not true? It comes down to motive. There are only three motives behind any murder, only three. You don't walk in the room and go, oh, my gosh, there's a thousand reasons why this could have happened. No, there aren't. There are three reasons why it could happen. That's it. Find somebody in one of those three categories. You're done. What are the three categories that motivate people to do a murder? Do you know? First one is 
Financial, yes, it's greed. Financial greed is huge. What's the second one? Sex, yes. Or relationship. It's sex on the guy's side, relationship on the girl's side. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Sexual lust, relational desire. What's the third one? Harder. Pursuit of power. You challenge my authority, you challenge my power. I want to grow this. You're trying to shrink it. No one disrespects me in my neighborhood. Pop. That's a power issue. Right? It's authority. These are the only three motives. Everything else is a... What about revenge? What what motivates you to be vengeful? What about hatred? Well, what motivates you? It's again, it's always these three motivations that motivate you to that other thing. Got it? So the question we have to ask is, what is motivating the 12 to lie to us about the resurrection? By the way, you think Joseph Smith who founded Mormonism, had any of these motivations? Do you think? He wrote in the scripture that he would be supported by the church. He had 32 wives, most of whom were already married to other people, celestial wives. Emma was not really happy about that. But he wrote it in the scripture that God said, Emma, knock it off. Don't be upset. I'm reinstating uh, polygamous marriage. How about pursuit of power? At one time, he ran for president. He had the largest standing army on the North American continent next to the uh, American militia. Doesn't mean you're gonna do something bad because you're motivated, because we're all motivated. We don't actually all act on it, right? But this is what's behind. So what is behind the, t- the 12? Do they get rich? Do they get girlfriends? How about this? They did become powerful in their own communities. Really? So Paul, who's already powerful in his own community, is going to leave that to get his butt beat for about how many years, right? He's always writing about that. So he can maybe be powerful in this renegade group? Come on. It's possible, just not reasonable. I mean, there's a difference between fame and infamy. If you were going to lead as a Christian in the first generation, you're kind of like this, this, this deer here with this uh, tattoo on his chest. <laughs> Bummer of a birthmark, Hal. <laughs> Dang. If you're a Christian leader in the first century, that's what you basically look like, okay? Come on, really? Do you know how these guys actually died? Now, we're doing a study right now. Sean McDowell is an apologist. His dad is Josh McDowell. And he's doing his PhD on the deaths of the disciples. And some of these traditions are pretty weak, if I'm honest with you. Not all of them are that good. But there is no competing first century account of the disciples ever recanting. And by the way, in the second century, people are more than happy to write to the emperor and say, hey, I got Christians recanting over here. Yeah, we told them they had to worship the Roman gods. They're, they're, they're done with Christianity now. Those reports are, are, are filled in the second century. But in the first century, the eyewitnesses never flinch. And they died going to their death because of their testimony. There is no competing claim from the first century. By the way, three witnesses to the golden plates of Mormonism, David Whitmer, Oliver Cowdery, Martin Harris, all three were either kicked out of the church or walked away from the church after supposedly seeing what Martin said later he only saw with his spiritual eyes, not with his physical eyes. And you push people. By the way, how much do you think our testimony as believers has today if we're willing to die for, a lot, for the truth of Christianity? If you're willing to die for Christianity today, your testimony has zero value. Lots of people die for a lie. But if you're a first century witness who actually saw it and you're willing to die for your testimony, that has huge evidential value. See it? There's difference there. That's what we have in the 12. We'll end with this. Why should I accept 
When in fact, this is written, the Gospels aren't history, they're written by their friends of Jesus. Of course they say nice things about Jesus, they're his friends. You can't accept the things written by Christians. That's so stupid, let me show you how stupid that is. If you're not working robbery, if you're working, you're assigned to the robbery homicide desk, right? And you're not working a homicide, what are you working? Robbery homicide desk, if you're not working a homicide, you're working robbery, like a bank robbery. Here's a guy who comes in. He shows the demand note to the, to the teller. She's already giving him the money because he's already shown her his gun and his demand note, which are now back in his pockets, and he's just collecting his cash. When he first walked in, there was a woman behind the assistant manager's desk named Kathy, and she recognized him immediately from high school. Picked the wrong bank, didn't he? So here he is in the wrong bank being recognized immediately, and sure enough, Kathy says, I didn't have time to get to him because our bank was full and I had a customer. I figure when he's done with this transaction, I'll say hello. But as I look up, I see that my coworker has that look on her face which she recognizes also. Push the button, look. Push the button, look. I got a robbery right here in front of me. And she was shocked. I know she was shocked because it says so on this slide. <laughs> that helps all of us figure this out. But she was shocked because she knew Robert from high school. And if you had asked her, she would have put Robert at the bottom of her list of people she thought were even capable of doing a robbery like this. This guy was an all-star athlete, super great grades, you know, academic, all-American. This guy was an ASB leader, sweetest person you could possibly. There's no way Robert's ever going to do a robbery. This is not Robert. But yeah, here he is. He's doing one. She's shocked. Now, afterwards, should I come to her and ask her, should I interview her about this bank robbery? I don't think so. After all, she's convinced now that Robert's a, a bank robber. You might even say she's a Robert Smithian. You can't go to Robert Smithians and ask the truth about Robert Smith, can you? Okay, do you see how stupid that is? She didn't start off with a bias that Robert Smith is a bank robber. She ended up with a conviction on the basis of observation. That's very different. She doesn't possess a pre-existing bias. She possesses a conclusion on the basis of observation. Now think about this for a second. I think she's very reliable because she was so set against it. Now if I'm looking at people who wrote the scriptures, let's say like John, how about this, how about Matthew? Matthew is sitting at the, uh, collecting uh, taxes when he gets a tap on the shoulder from Jesus. Come on, dude, we're gonna spend a few years doing some stuff. And for three years he watches all that nonsense. At the end of it, he's in. He doesn't start off as a believer. He's not even part of the disciples of John the Baptist. No one's pointing him to Jesus. He gets plucked out of his work life, and he sees this for three years, and now he's writing a gospel about it. Why won't you accept it? He's not biased. He's now got a conclusion on the basis of observation. He's like Kathy. Got it? That's why you can trust it. Now, we started with this idea of a body and use some abductive reasoning. Now, we're going to go to Jesus. Abductive reasoning is listing at all the evidences and all the possible explanations. When it came to Scripture, I figured there were some possible explanations, most of which I thought were these. It's a late, inaccurate, distorted lie. Or it's possibly truthful and reliable. But as I looked at the evidence and made a list of the things, we only covered the last two today in this service. We covered its transmission, and we covered its attestation on the part of the disciples. That's all we covered but given what I know evidentially, I've got to cross these off. These just aren't true. And that leaves you with conclusions you have to deal with. Does that make sense? That's why I'm a Christian today. I am not a Christian because it works for me. I'll be honest with you, it doesn't work for me. It hardly ever works for me. It sucks. <laughs> I'll just tell you, it does. 
there are times when I have to, just, I have to take what I want, what I used to do at, with liberty, and I have to not do that. I have to do the, this higher thing. I don't, I don't want to do that higher thing sometimes. I want to do the, the cheap, easy thing that feels good. I used to celebrate that stuff. Now i got to feel bad about it? Really? But here's the problem. It's true. I know it's true. So I'm now stuck with it. And wouldn't you rather live in the truth, regardless of how inconvenient it is, than live in a lie? It's something to think about. Now, I come to these kinds of talks. I, want to, I used to hate, as an atheist, Christians who are selling stuff. Now, I'm a Christian who's selling stuff. <laughs> do you see the problem? So what I try to do is pass out these cards. Now that we have enough for this whole service. Some of you probably got some, some of you didn't. That's okay. We gave them all out in the last service. It allows you to send, give me your name and your email so I can send you one personal email from my personal email address, okay? You'll get one. That email is going to give you a link to the follow-up videos, MP3s, two Bible inserts on the chain of custody and early dating, and all the PDF forms that will have all this information on there. I want to give that to you. And if you don't have a card, sign up at the table. I have two clipboards. Just cram that table and sign up. Yes, if you want a copy of the book, I'll be happy to give you, a, you know, write you a, a, sign a, a copy of the book. But that is not why I'm here. I'm a volunteer at Stand. I have a pension. I'm good to go. This is ministry. This is our calling as Christians. That's why I come. I want you to have that same passion, that same feeling. Last thing before I go. Most of us in this room have made a decision for Christ. You're what I call a one-decision Christian. You've made a decision to trust Christ with your salvation, and that makes, that's perfect. It's exactly what God calls us to do. But that's not all God calls us to do. Some of you feel bad that you don't share your faith enough. I'm not, evangel I'm not evangelical enough. I don't, I don't you know, I don't, uh, I don't, I, we should be more, more evangelists. You know, we should be sharing our faith. How many of you feel like you're like, the, you're like the Billy Graham of your generation? You know, if you're at the market today, you're gonna strike up a conversation about God. If you're waiting at a restaurant, you're gonna, how many guys do that? Raise your hand if you do that. Yeah, isn't that sad? One or two guys and they're liars. But other than that, <laughs> no, I'm just messing with you. Just messing with you. I'm sure you really do that. We feel bad. We feel bad that we don't do what we're called to do. Really? Ephesians 4, Paul says that some of you are pastors, some of you are evangelists, some of you are teachers. That means that some of you aren't. Right? Some of you aren't Billy Graham. You're never going to be Billy Graham. You're just so abrasive. I don't even want you to mention you're a Christian for crying out loud. <laughs> right? Okay. That's why some of you are given those jobs, and some of you aren't. But Peter says in 1 Peter 3.15 that all of you have to be ready to offer the reason for the trust and the hope you have in Christ. It's an option to be a pastor, an evangelist, a teacher. It's not an option to be a Christian casemaker, to make a case for what you believe. That's not an option. You've been treating it that way. You've been living in an abbreviated Christian life. You've been a one-decision Christian. You need to be a two-decision Christian Decide to trust Christ. Decide to defend Christ in this culture where he needs defending. You've got to do the second one. So I want you to consider if you're a one-decision Christian to become a two-decision Christian. If you're a zero-decision Christian, what are you waiting for? No, I mean, be honest. At some point, I had to ask myself the question, am I not believing this because there's not enough evidence or because I don't want there to be enough evidence? Ask yourself that question. Be honest with the evidence. 
and see where it leads you. Put down your hatred of God to examine whether or not he even exists. I had a hatred of God. I was very happy being the God of Jim's world. Let's pray. Father, I just ask that you would uh, prepare our hearts. We talk about Lord's Supper and how important it is to us. And we want to be um, taking this with, with great sincerity and great wisdom and with great um, passion. We want to celebrate you, Father, and what you've done in our lives, but we want to come to you worshiping you in more than just our words and our songs. That is worship, Father. We want to give that to you, but we want to worship you in our mind. We want to worship you with our mind. We want to spend time thinking about you, examining whether this is true or not, being able to defend. This is worship, Father. We know you accredit this to us as worship. Father, help us to worship you. Help us to be passionate worshipers as we worship you with our minds as well as our heart and our soul. We love you, Father. We want to give you every minute. We want every thought to be held captive. We pray this in the name of your precious son, Jesus Christ. And everyone here says, amen. amen. We thank Jim.